Volume One, Chapter Two of Clayhanger by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume One, Chapter Two, The Flame. The various agencies which society has placed at the disposal of a parent had been at work on Edwin in one way or another for at least a decade, in order to equip him for just this very day when he should step into the world. The moment must therefore be regarded as dramatic, the first crucial moment of an experiment long and elaborately prepared. Knowledge was admittedly the armour and the weapon of one about to try conclusions with the world, and many people for many years had been engaged in providing Edwin with knowledge. He had received, in fact, a good education, or even, as some said, a thoroughly sound education, assuredly as complete an equipment of knowledge as could be obtained in the county, for the curriculum of the Old Castle High School was less in accord with common sense than that of the middle school. He knew, however, nothing of natural history, and in particular of himself, of the mechanism of the body and mind through which his soul had to express and fulfil itself. Not one word of information about either physiology or psychology had ever been breathed to him, nor had it ever occurred to anyone around him that such information was needful and, as no one had tried to explain to him the mysteries which he carried about with him inside that fair skin of his, so no one had tried to explain to him the mysteries by which he was hemmed in, either mystically through religion, or rationally through philosophy. Never in chapel or at Sunday school had a difficulty been genuinely faced, and as for philosophy, he had not the slightest conception of what it meant. He imagined that a philosopher was one who made the best of a bad job, and he had never heard the word used in any other sense. He had great potential intellectual curiosity, but nobody had thought to stimulate it by even casually telling him that the finest minds of humanity had been trying to systematise the mysteries for quite twenty-five centuries. Of physical science he had been taught nothing, save a grotesque proportion to the effect that gravity was a force which drew things towards the centre of the earth. In the matter of chemistry, it had been practically demonstrated to him scores of times, so that you should never forget this grand basic truth, that sodium and potassium may be relied upon to fizz flamingly about on a surface of water. Of geology he was perfectly ignorant, though he lived in a district whose whole livelihood depended on the scientific use of geological knowledge, and though the existence of Old Castle itself was due to a freak of the earth's crust, which geologists call a fault. Two. Geography had been one of his strong points. He was aware of the rivers of Asia in their order, and of the principal products of Uruguay, and he could name the capitals of nearly all the United States. But he had never been instructed for five minutes in the geography of his native county, of which he knew neither the boundaries, nor the rivers, nor the terrene characteristics. He could have drawn a map of the Orinoco, but he could not have found the Trent in a day's march. He did not even know where his drinking water came from. That geographical considerations are the cause of all history had never been hinted to him, nor that history bears immediately upon modern life and bore on his own life. For him, history hung unsupported and unsupporting in the air. In the course of his school career, he had several times approached the nineteenth century, but it seemed to him that for administrative reasons 
he was always being dragged back again to the Middle Ages. Once his form had got as far as the infancy of his own father, and concerning this period he had learnt that great dissatisfaction prevailed among the labouring classes who were led to believe by mischievous demagogues, etc. But the next term he was recording round Henry the Eighth, who was a skilful warrior and politician, but unfortunate in his domestic relations, and so to Elizabeth, than whom few sovereigns have been so much belied, but her character comes out unscathed after the closest examination. History indeed resolved itself into a series of more or less sanguinary events, arbitrarily grouped under the names of persons who had to be identified with the assistance of numbers. Neither of the development of national life, nor of the clash of nations, did he really know anything that was not inessential and anecdotic. He could not remember the clauses of Magna Carta, but he knew eternally that it was signed at a place amusingly called Runnymede, and the one fact engraved on his memory about the Battle of Waterloo that it was fought on a Sunday. And as he had acquired absolutely nothing about political economy or about logic, and was therefore at the mercy of the first agreeable sophistry that might take his fancy by storm, his unfitness to commence the business of being a citizen almost reached perfection. 3. For his personal enjoyment of the earth and air and sun and stars, and of society and solitude, no preparation had been made or dreamt of. The sentiment of nature had never been encouraged in him or even mentioned. He knew not how to look at a landscape nor at a sky. Of plants and trees he was as exquisitely ignorant as of astronomy. It had not occurred to him to wonder why the days are longer in summer, and he vaguely supposed that the cold of winter was due to an increased distance of the earth from the sun. Still, he had learnt that satin had a ring, and sometimes he unconsciously looked for it in the firmament, as for a tea-tray. Of art and the arts he had been taught nothing. He had never seen a great picture or statue, nor heard great orchestral or solo music, and he had no idea that architecture was an art and emotional, though it moved him in a very peculiar fashion. Of the art of English literature, or of any other literature, he had likewise been taught nothing. But he knew the meaning of a few obsolete words in a few plays of Shakespeare. He had not learnt how to express himself orally in any language, but through hard drilling he was so genuinely erudite in accidents and syntax that he could parse and analyse with superb assurance the most magnificent sentences of Milton, Virgil, and Racine. This skill, together with an equal skill in utilising the elementary properties of numbers and geometrical figures, was the most brilliant achievement of his long apprenticeship. And now his education was finished. It had cost his father twenty-eight shillings a term, or four guineas a year, and no trouble. In younger days his father had spent more money, and far more personal attention, on the upbringing of a dog. His father had enjoyed success with dogs through treating them as individuals. But it had not happened to him, nor to anybody in authority, to treat Edwin as an individual. Nevertheless, it must not be assumed that Edwin's father was a callous and conscienceless brute, and Edwin a martyr of neglect. Old Clayhanger was, on the contrary, an average, upright, and respectable parent, who had given his son a thoroughly sound education, 
and Edwin had had the good fortune to receive that thoroughly sound education as a preliminary to entering the world. 4. He was very far from realising the imperfections of his equipment for the grand entry, but still he was not without uneasiness. In particular, the conversation incident to the canal-boat wager was disturbing him. It amazed him, as he reflected, that he should have remained, to such an advanced age, in a state of ignorance concerning the origin of the clay from which the crocks of his native district were manufactured. That the Sunday should have been able to inform him did not cause him any shame, for he guessed from the peculiar eager tone of voice in which the facts had been delivered that the Sunday was merely retailing some knowledge recently acquired by chance. He knew all the Sunday's tones of voice, and he also was well aware that the Sunday's brain was not on the whole better stored than his own. Further, the Sunday was satisfied with his bit of accidental knowledge. Edwin was not. Edwin wanted to know why, if the clay for making earthenware was not got in the five towns, the five towns had become the great seat of the manufacture. Why were not pots made in the south where the clay came from? He could not think of any answer to this enigma, nor of any means of arriving by himself at an answer. The feeling was that he ought to have been able to arrive at the answer, as at the answer to an equation. He did not definitely blame his education. He did not think clearly about the thing at all. But, as a woman with a vague discomfort dimly fears cancer, so he dimly feared that there might be something fundamentally unsound in this sound education of his and he had remorse for all the shirking that he had been guilty of during all his years at school. He shook his head solemnly at the immense and nearly universal shirking that continually went on. He could only acquit three or four boys, among the hundreds he had known, of the shameful sin. And all that he could say in favour of himself was that there were many worse than Edwin Clayhanger. Not many of the boys, but the masters, were sinners. Only two masters could he unreservedly respect as having acted conscientiously up to their pretensions, and one of these was an unpleasant brute. All the cleverness, the ingenuities, the fakes, the insincerities, the impercacities, the vanities, and the dishonesties of the rest stood revealed to him, and he judged them by the mere essential force of character alone. A schoolmaster might as well attempt to deceive God as a boy who is watching him every day with the inhuman eye of youth. "'All this must end now,' he said to himself, meaning all that could be included in the word shirk. 5. He was splendidly serious. He was as splendidly serious as a reformer. By a single urgent act of thought, he would have made himself a man, and changed imperfection into perfection. He desired and there was real passion in his desire, to do his best, to exhaust himself in doing his best, in living according to his conscience. He did not know of what he was capable, nor what he could achieve. Achievement was not the matter of his desire, but endeavour, honest and terrific endeavour. He admitted to himself his shortcomings, and he did not underestimate the difficulties that lay before him. But he said, thinking of his father, Surely he'll see I mean business. Surely he's bound to give in when he sees how much in earnest I am. He was convinced, almost, that passionate faith could move mountainous fathers. I'll show em, he muttered. And he meant that he would show the world. 
He was honouring the world. He was paying the finest homage to it. In that head of his, a flame burnt that was like an altar-fire, a miraculous and beautiful phenomenon, than which nothing is more miraculous nor more beautiful over the whole earth. Whence had it suddenly sprung, that flame? After years of muddy inefficiency, of contentedness with the second-rate and the dishonest, that flame astoundingly bursts forth from a hidden, unheeded spark that none had ever thought to blow upon. It bursts forth out of a damp jungle of careless habits and negligence that could not possibly have fed it. There is little to encourage it. The very architecture of the streets shows that environment has done naught for it. Ragged brickwork, walls finished anyhow with saggers and slag, narrow, uneven alleys leading to higgledy-piggledy workshops and kilns, cottages transformed into factories and factories into cottages, clumsily, hastily, because nothing matters so long as it will do. Everywhere something forced to fulfil, badly, the function of something else. In brief, the reign of the slovenly makeshift, shameless, filthy, and picturesque. Edwin himself seemed no tabernacle for that singular flame. He was not merely untidy and dirty. At his age such defects might have excited in a sane observer uneasiness by their absence, but his gestures and his gait were untidy. He did not mind how he walked. All his sprawling limbs were saying, "'What does it matter so long as we get there?' The angle of the slatternly bag across his shoulders was an insult to the flame. And yet the flame burned with serene and terrible pureness. It was surprising that no one saw it passing along the mean, black, smoke-palled streets that huddle about St. Luke's Church. Sundry, experienced, and fat old women were standing or sitting at their cottage doors, one or two smoking cutties. But even they, who in childbed and at gravesides had been at the very core of life for long years, they, who saw more than most, could only see a fresh lad passing along, with fair hair and a clear complexion and gawky knees and elbows, a fierce, rapt expression on his straightforward, good-natured face. Some knew that it was Clayhanger's lad, a nice-behaved young gentleman, and the spitten image of his poor mother. They all knew what a lad is, the feel of his young skin under his duds, the capricious freedom of his movements, his sudden madnesses and shoutings and tendernesses, and the exceeding power of his unconscious willful charm. They could divine all that in a glance, but they could not see the mysterious and holy flame of the desire for self-perfection blazing within that tousled head. And if Edwin had suspected that anybody could indeed perceive it, he would have whipped it out for shame, though the repudiation had meant everlasting death. Such is youth in the five towns, if not elsewhere. End of Volume 1, Chapter 2